for great-looking T-shirts, hoodies, and sweatshirts. The TNT Shop is now open at tntradio.live. You're with Trish Wood and The Edit on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Hi, everybody. This is Trish Wood, and you are watching The Edit this morning. Um, Listening to what has been happening in the region of the Middle East around Israel and Gaza is hopeful. And then you have these sort of moments of thinking, wow, it's never going to end. Obviously, all eyes are on the idea that there is supposed to be a ceasefire coming up on Friday um, of some sort and a prisoner exchange and a hostage exchange. Um, But as we said to you yesterday, it's frequently darkest before the dawn when these things are about to happen. And we have learned that there there was heavy bombardment last night uh, in an update from Gaza from medical aid for the Palestinians. And they report that two members of their team saw bombing near their homes overnight in Gaza, 190 patients have been evacuated from Shifa Hospital. 250 staff and patients remain. Wow. Uh, Israeli forces have arrested the hospital's director. We don't know anything more about that than that little bit of information. And that's kind of scary. The area around Kamal Adwin Hospital has been attacked and dozens killed. Um, Al Jazeera reports that a spokesman for the health ministry says that this doctor was en route from northern Gaza Strip to the south with other medics when he was arrested by Israeli forces. So um, he was questioned apparently by the intelligence service Shin Beit after after his arrest. Wow. So um, we're going to see what happens in the next in the next little while, aren't we? Um, if this can really happen. But one thing that's sure is, uh, and according to Netanyahu himself, the bombardments are going to continue the minute that this is over. And there was some interesting news yesterday that kind of developed too, and that was the idea that the Biden administration was against the uh, ceasefire to some degree because he was worried about Western media actually getting in to see what was going on. We've been getting our information mostly from Palestinian uh, journalists who were already stationed in Gaza, so they didn't have to get permission to go in like like Western reporters have been trying to get from Israel, which has said no unless they embed with the Israeli army, which is censoring what they can broadcast. That's a very, don't like keep that in your mind when you're watching these news reports that they've been cleared. They're not just letting people, Western media go in and do the reporting. So so we'll see what happens. If there is a ceasefire, there, then there becomes no rational explanation, no security explanation for not letting Western media in. And I think when they get in there, they, there may be a little bit of a change of tune. I, I think Biden is probably in his own way, like a stopped clock, uh, right twice a day. The problem is that he sees it as a threat to his support of the bombardment policy and the uh, Israeli government wanting to continue that. As the ire of the world is rising up, I think more solidly than ever against that ongoing policy. But um, I think it will, I think he should be concerned about it because I think once Western media get in there, they may actually have some human response to what's going on and begin reporting uh, 
for on the human cost of, of what's been happening there, which is, I mean, it's almost unprecedented in this period of time. I remember when the Rwandan genocide was happening, um, it was hard to get Western attention for it. They weren't paying attention to it until it was too late. But I think even though these numbers are really big, that there's a chance maybe um, for more pressure even to be put directly on the Western governments that are are supporting this. I don't think Israel is going to be more secure after this. Actually, I, I think if the answer is the, the answer is we're doing it for for our own security, I have grave doubts about that. But that's probably for another show that we'll do on this very subject. Anyway, so we're waiting to see how how that uh, plays out. On today's show, we're going to be talking to a fellow named Mike. Fairclough. And I have liked during all of COVID reporting that I've done to really focus on people who stood their ground in the face of paying a very high price for their ethical stance on whether or not they were going to accept some of these more draconian kind of edicts, which history has shown us uh, didn't work from vaccines to lockdowns to masks, all of them. Lots of people, not enough obviously, but lots of people stood tall against those edicts, uh, on, especially on children, and paid very, very high price. Jennifer Say is one of them. I know her. She was a big executive at Levi's and was speaking out against school closures, I believe, in California. And um, she was told to be quiet because it was making the company look bad. She, she was a big executive there making tons of money. And um, she refused to be quiet. And then, as I understand the story, she refused a massive um, payment that had connected to it an NDA or a non-disclosure agreement. And um, she walked away from a million bucks in order to keep speaking about how dangerous school closures were going to be. So, you know, there are good people like that in the world. And we have to hang on to that in these times because some, it, sometimes it just feels like the whole game is rigged against everybody. But people, and, and that people are afraid, and people are afraid. There's no doubt about that. And uh, Mike Fairclough uh, will talk about that in the interview we've got coming up just in a few minutes. Um, I did want to say that we're connecting the COVID stuff we're doing to the fact that there is this ongoing inquiry in the UK a COVID inquiry. Everybody who saw through the BS was saying, we need an inquiry, but of course, eh, you know, they never look at the Warren Commission, look at the 9-11 Commission. I mean, they never actually produce an honest result. They don't hold people accountable in a serious way. We're not going to get that. But what this one is doing, it is shining a bit of a light on how inept the people in government were in the UK. And we can just paradigm that in Ottawa, Canada, and Washington, D.C., and all kinds of Germany, too, all kinds of other places where they just got into lockstep on this stuff and weren't asking, well, I was going to say they're hard questions. They're actually not hard questions. They're kind of science and medicine 101, which is if we do this to solve this problem, is it going to create a bigger problem over here? It's called risk-benefit. Uh, and they never asked those questions about lockdowns. They, they didn't do it. I have not found a single piece of evidence in the three and a half years I've been working on the COVID story that a government 
agency sat down and had a serious discussion about the harms they might be causing. They got locked into a paradigm, I keep using the word paradigm, but it, it is was a kind of paradigm of if we convinced people to lock down, which they did through using this fear campaign, uh, when they want to unlock the lockdown people, the people are too afraid. So they were getting in their polling numbers really good support for continuing lockdowns. They'd convinced enough people that they were going to die of COVID if they took a step outside their apartments that they were getting these poll numbers that were not based on science. So it was kind of a loop, you know, they'd feed out fearful information, the people would react, then they would respond to that and put another lockdown based on fearful information. That, that was the loop. And that was confirmed to me by a Canadian politician named Roman Babber, who, who uh, spoke up against lockdowns here and was kicked out of caucus for it. He stood alone and boy, did he take a drubbing in the press. And you know what? He was right about absolutely everything. So do you think we're gonna see a big mea culpa? Do you think we're gonna see anybody in trouble or any civil liability or anything along those lines from this? Not at all, not at all. But it is a little bit of a window into the way that they were thinking and people, it's really scary because they weren't asking what are actually simple questions about the harm that they might have been causing. They, they weren't doing that. And even Chris Whitty, who testified yesterday, uh, talked about herd immunity as if it wasn't a thing and was sending out memoranda to people saying, don't talk about herd immunity as if it's, it's, it was not a long-held precept of science, which it absolutely was. I mean, the World Health Organization changed its definition of herd immunity, which is immunity that is built up naturally in a community, not without protections. You can still protect people, like Great Barrington said, but you know who they are. They are the vulnerable people. You protect them. That's how you get to herd immunity. Nothing controversial about that at all. But the United Nations in the middle of COVID, the World Health Organization, changed on their website the definition of herd immunity to be only immunity that you get from taking the vaccine. And that is absolutely true, that happened. So we're gonna get to Mike Fairclough uh, right after the break. I'll, I'll tell you all about him when we come back, but he was a very courageous, is a very courageous person who was teaching and trying to protect children in the UK and spoke out about masks, about vaccines, about lockdowns and paid a super, super high price for that. So we're gonna, talk about his story and we're also going to get his assessment about what it's like now to be watching this excavation happening sort of publicly at the uh, COVID inquiry hearings in the UK. So we'll be back in a moment. This is Trish Wood and the edit. TNT Radio's Rick Munn. I'm looking also at South Africa in terms of uh, ESCOM, which is a company that we have talked about a lot here. That's the South African electricity provider. ESCOM has posted a massive 24 billion rand loss for 2022-2023 financial year, exacerbated by a huge escalation in load shedding, which is basically blackouts, for want of a better expression, mounting municipal debt and skyrocketing losses due to criminal activity. 
activity. That's both within the company, I would say, and outside of the company. The group presented its first full year financials for the 12 months ending 31st of March on Tuesday. It said the year was characterized by a significant deterioration of performance, including a steep decline in energy availability of 56%, down from 62%. So half the country are having difficulty getting any electricity at all. And most places are undergoing what's called uh, load shedding, which means for up to 10 hours per day, you could be disconnected from the electricity supply in South Africa. Locked and loaded with Rick Munn on today's News Talk TNT Radio. Sometimes life can be overwhelming and suicide may seem like the only way to relieve the pain. Beyond Now is an evidence-based app created by Beyond Blue to help you cope when suicidal thoughts start to appear. You can use it to create an easy-to-follow plan that is personal to you and includes steps like know your warning signs so you can act early, make your environment safe by removing harmful items, activities you can do or people you can be with to distract yourself from suicidal thoughts, reminders of things that make you feel strong. Some of these steps might be tough to fill out, and that's okay. It can be helpful to make or share your safety plan with a trusted friend, family member or mental health professional. You might feel like you're alone, but help is available. If you're worried you can't stay safe, use the red telephone icon to call your emergency contacts. Download the free Beyond Now app today to create your personal safety plan. Today's News Talk Radio. Come on, let the man talk. We never censor our hosts. Good. Now, talk. Uncensored News. Today's News Talk Radio. TNT. Hi, everybody. This is Trish Wood and the edit, and we're just about to go to our guest for today, Mike uh, Fairclough, who is, in my view, and I'm sure in the minds of many other people who are awake and alert to what was happening uh, early on in the COVID crisis. And I'm not talking about the virus here. I'm talking about the public health policy crisis, which made it worse for everybody. And in my opinion, is responsible for many, not just my opinion, based on data, uh, responsible for many, many deaths. And as I said in my open, that calculation was not being made. And it drove people uh, like me, and I'm sure like Mike too crazy, that they were not running risk-benefit ratios the way they should have been before they were implementing these things absolutely blindly and cruelly and with no concern for the harm that they were causing. I know that sounds harsh, but history proves us correct on that point. And uh, I'll throw it to Mike now and say, I guess you, you would agree with that, wouldn't you? Yes. Um I mean, there's there's the currently there's the COVID inquiry in um, the UK, which is turning out to be a sort of whitewash uh, and and sort of rewriting yeah. of uh, that period of our yeah. um, of our history. But um, it's it's clear that there was a pandemic plan in in place prior to the COVID pandemic, and it was just ignored. So. Um, uh, and there's a lot of, you know, speculation about uh, why that was. But what we can see is the outcome uh, was, um, you know, the biggest transfer of wealth from everybody to the super rich in the history of mankind. Yeah. And, of course, a massive power grab. So, you know, it shouldn't be too difficult to work out people's incentives. But currently, yes, uh, it's, it's clear that, um, you know, despite the catastrophic harms of lockdowns, for example, um, there's still a sort of 
the the COVID inquiry is moving in the direction of uh, advising that we should have locked down sooner, harder and longer, mm -hmm. which, of course, would have been even more devastating. How did I know that's where they were going? All right. Like they're just they're, mm -hmm. no one is ever really going to look at this as long as it's connected to a government inquiry right it's just i don't think it can happen it's like asking no. the fox to, to guard the hen house right it's not going to happen <laughs> now I, I, yeah. I didn't get your intro to and i want people to really understand who you are so mike fairclough you've been teaching for 25 years you're the author of playing with fire embracing risk and danger in schools i love that idea we're going to talk about it later and so are you teaching now or or i know no you so so actually yeah, so so I was uh, I qualified thirty years ago, and for the last wow. twenty years, I've been um, a head teacher or school principal uh, of a school, Westrise Junior School in Eastbourne. Uh, so that in in the UK, so that's, that's three hundred and sixty five children, sixty members of staff. It's on a, in an area of um, uh, of deprivation. Yeah. Um, amazing wow. community, really amazing people. And uh, but yes, I have constructively dismissed myself from that position following what what happened to me over COVID. Okay, I just want to also get some of your accolades in here. So people know that, you know, you're you're a serious educator, you know what you're doing. Name primary school of the year. This is West Rise Junior School, I guess, right? In, in East Sussex, yes. where you were? Yeah. Uh, yeah by yeah. the Times Educational Supplement, no small thing, and described as a beautiful school community by Sir Ken Robinson. Um, you know, it, it sounds like you were on a roll. And also, more, yeah. I guess, sadly, it sounds like maybe you were born to do this, too. And and yeah. and maybe the fact that you're so good at it is why you got in trouble because you couldn't be quiet. So tell me that yeah. story. Okay, so so prior to this time, um, the I, I no, I felt like anything I did, uh, I'd, like anything I touched, turned gold basically. And I had the support of the UK Inspectorate, which always gave us good um uh results following inspections uh the uk's health and safety executive uh praised us we we're in the national and international media uh regularly um uh, you know I've, I've written three books actually um uh, about my educational ethos and and ideas and and done some quite extraordinary things as well so i've taught my kids to shoot 410 shotguns and um skin rabbits and pluck pigeons and every child in the school learns to light a fire and cook over an open fire all of that kind of stuff things which you might expect uh complaints to be raised about because people yeah. might think well that's a bit kind of strange but never that never ever happened in fact the opposite happened I was always praised but um when um the pandemic started and initially I was really concerned because Boris Johnson uh the prime minister at the time said many of us will lose loved ones and at yeah. that point we it wasn't clear that the um uh the th that covid would uh, was only going to affect like vulnerable people and elderly people etc um so I, I said to my parents if you want to keep your kids at home do so for well, until yeah. we know what's going on which they did initially and then um about um a week later there were the official school closures um but all schools were like partially opened so we had like 150 out of our 350 children on site 30 out of our 60 members of staff and after about three weeks and after we had been told children are at extremely low risk of serious illness from covid it was clear that we should open up society again 
open up the schools and carry on as normal. And I articulated these points. And that's when I started to receive criticism for the very first time. I, I want to ask you something because I, I had my own epiphany actually pretty early on just because I've, I had a science background and I'd covered Tony Fauci back in the 80s during the AIDS crisis. I had limited yeah. respect for <laughs> Dr. Fauci. Um, and I was reading Johnny Anides and other people from Stanford who were saying, even in March, you know, this is not a disease that children have a low viral load. They don't get sick and die unless they're already compromised. I know that wasn't widely known, but but it took a long time for that to take root. And even at the end of COVID, you still had, and legacy media to this day are still painting this dire um, outcome for children getting COVID. And it, yeah. it makes me, you know, if my, I guess my first question, I'll, this is just an opinion for you to throw at me, but are people really that stupid or, or is it that they're so afraid themselves they don't want to take a risk by setting the children free like i i feel there's an element of self-protection based on just pure fear is, here that led to it yeah. what do you what do you think mike so there's several different things so the people who uh still believe that covid is this terrible um virus that indiscriminately takes anyone out and can affect children and then they spread it to everyone and they start dropping like flies um they have uh, there's two really good models there's the milgram experiments uh of the the idea of like somebody in authority telling people to do something and they will yeah. do it even if it goes against their core values so i think there's yeah. merit in that sort of um idea uh there's also the um the the idea of mass formation psycho psychosis so just because everyone else says and thinks something then that's what you do so i think those are two like good uh sort of explanations plus in the uk um there's it's been revealed now that um from matt hancock who was the uh health minister at the time um that there was a military grade psychological operation which was being enacted on the people in order to manipulate their um their their actions and their thoughts and what they said and did and all the rest of it um that in tandem with um the nudge units which were um uh, these kind of units psychological operation units in order to influence behavior plus of course an enormous amount at the time of um online censorship so um for example myself because i um I started my I got into real deep uh, kind of deep trouble when I started uh, questioning the covid vaccine rollout to children and just to explain I was the only head teacher or UK principal out of the whole of the UK there's 20,000 plus of us to to publicly question lockdowns masking kids and the covid vaccine rollout to children um and um uh, and when time, was that mike mike when when was that when, uh, when i you... started uh doing that at the the latter part of 2020 and then really ramped things up um in early 2021 and i started to be um like suspended from twitter and eventually i was permanently banned from twitter for always repeating the same things by the way so with regards to the covid vaccines for children which has been my biggest concern i've always said four things one 
children are at extremely low risk of serious illness from COVID. Two, uh, the COVID vaccines pose known very serious risks. Three, um, there is no long-term safety data for the uh, for the vaccines. And finally, a child can still catch and spread COVID even when vaccinated against the virus. And I've always said in my personal opinion, therefore, the COVID vaccines outweigh any possible benefit for a child. And that was enough for me to be uh, deplatformed, but also uh, following a freedom of information uh, request I made to the government, it turned out that I'd been monitored by the UK's counter disinformation units. So what they were doing is they were silencing any dissenting voices anywhere. And, and as I just said, I was the only one uh, at my level within the um, education profession. But I've, I have journalist friends and lawyer friends uh, and um, media broadcasters who are also on that essentially um, terror watch list um, and who were who were silenced along with medics as well so I think there's a lot of those there's censorship um, there's the psychological manipulation but then the other massive big factor and what I've been thinking about a lot because it's still an issue um, is self-censorship so although I was the only one to speak out publicly in, in a in a moderate and lawful manner regarding lockdowns masking kids and covid vaccines for children i had lots of head teacher colleagues who privately said to me look i agree with what you're saying but i don't want to do anything out of fear of reprisals and that's the biggest thing and that's that's also where the opportunity is i feel at the moment for us to be able to empower others to be able to speak about anything it could be an opinion which is completely different to mine but which is considered taboo within a relationship within the workplace yeah. within society as a whole and we need to be able to uh give people the skills to be able to speak about controversial and politically sensitive topics yeah agreed i want to just situate your story now so because yeah. the the teaching part of it is 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 it, that's a big piece and you would think that if someone as beloved as you were i mean you were getting amazing media i was looking at your stuff you were like the hunk called the hunk or something or you were getting yeah. kind of like superhero kind of yeah like, yeah know, the yeah greatest it was teacher really ever kind of yeah, yeah. It was and, then, and then it was literally everywhere so so whether it was i mean we had uh like over 17 million views on facebook alone for a channel four news piece and you know i mean it was all the kind of um the sort of uh, juicy bits of what we were doing. It was the outdoor learning um, stuff. And by the way, um, whether it was, and because we, we also had a herd of water buffalo, which the kids yeah. looked after, it was like full power. So, and but underpinning all of that was the development of resilience and the engaging of the imagination and encouraging children to take risks, calculated risks in order to embrace risk and danger, which, as you mentioned, was the like the subtitle of my uh, first book. And, you know, I could literally everyone everyone was cool with it. It was no problem. In fact, they endorsed it from the health and safety bodies uh, to the UK inspectorate to the Department for Education. But it's really interesting and chilling that once it came to the point and it was specifically the vaccines that was my that was what I came under the most pressure for I began to receive or rather my employer began to receive anonymous whistleblowing complaints about me and it started in uh 2021 where there was yeah. say somebody said um you know 
Mike, Mike Fairclough's um, saying that lockdowns uh, could cause harm. And he's also saying that children shouldn't be receiving the COVID vaccines for children. So I was then investigated. Um, I thought, OK, that's kind of really full on and a bit weird, but OK, that's happened. I'll move on now. And then within a matter of months, uh, because I continued my campaigning, because actually after the investigation happened, they cleared me of any wrongdoing and said, yep, yeah, you have a right to lawful free speech. You can carry mm -hmm. on doing what you want to do. So I did. Uh, and by the way, I was very, very careful to align my messaging with very respected people. So, and it was always like um, mainstream journalists such as The Telegraph's Alison Pearson and Molly Kingsley mm -hmm. and uh, renowned uh, lawyers uh, and just making sure because I was always thinking, right, I, I want to be able to communicate with people who might have the complete opposite opinion to mine or who might be in the balance so i don't want to kind of red pill people with like loads of like you know theories and and data no. and things i just repeated those four points that i said before but that and, was and just can i say the data yeah, backed your the data backed your position right like you, yeah, you yeah. just have to allow yourself you weren't making it no. up it wasn't based on a feeling Yep. The data did not support giving it to children, right? Absolutely. And interestingly, yeah. in the UK, um, the 5 to 11-year-old cohort, uh, almost 90, 90% of parents elected for their children not to have the COVID vaccine. So that would suggest that they reached the same end conclusion as I did, i.e. the risks uh, outweigh the benefits with regards to yeah. the COVID vaccines. But this was enough to trigger anonymous um, whistleblowing complaints. So I received then a second one, which was much more intense and involved a full day's um, sort of interrogation of what I was doing and, and so on and so forth. And again, the conclusion from the independent investigator was that I hadn't done any wrong and I could continue. But it was the third one where it was really amplified because not only was I reported to my employer, I was also reported to the UK's counter, sorry, the Department for Education's counter extremism division, uh, to Ofsted, to the Children's Commissioner. And uh, it was the complaint was delivered under what's called Prevent, which is the uh, UK's counter extremism and terrorism division. So I was being framed as a sort of militant terrorist for my law for expressing my lawful opinions and that was the final straw for me i mean i actually did give my employer one more opportunity i said look you uh, you know again by the way i was cleared across the board including by the counter extremism people they said no he hasn't done anything wrong but um i then said to my employer right okay can you please guarantee that you will not repeatedly investigate me for exactly the same thing over and over and over again. And unfortunately, they were unable to do that. So I constructively dismissed myself. Okay, I'll ask you about that in a minute. But I just want to clarify, you used the word whistleblower. Does that yeah. suggest that the people making the complaints against you were colleagues or parents? Do you have any idea where it was coming from? Uh, so the last complaint, uh, I was told it was a group of uh, teachers and parents, but I have not had a single parent come forward and criticise me f f to my face or in writing or since I've left, you know, there'll be an ample opportunity for people to be able to say, oh, we totally disagreed with what you were doing. And that has just simply not happened. Um, the uh, I've been told it wasn't 
uh, members of staff from my school. Um, but, you know, it's very sort of cloak and dagger. And the reason it's anonymous mm-hmm. whistleblowing complaints is so that they, they retain their anonymity. I do know from the first one, because it was my vice chair of governors who uh, was charged with uh, carrying out the investigation. And she discovered that um, that complaint came from a group of retired National Health Service uh, personnel who made it their business to seek out anyone from the medical or education sectors who they regarded as spreading misinformation. And it was their mission to get them removed from their employment. And remember, again, as like, as I said before, these people were also being subjected to this military grade psychological operation. Mm-hmm. So of course they were like, you know, we've got to hound these people out and find these bad people and so on. And I think as the dust is settling, it's like with lockdowns, I don't know what it's like in Canada, but here it's almost impossible to find a single person who says that they now agreed with lockdowns at the time. They're like, oh yeah, I thought it was a bad idea and so on and so forth. But again, we return to that point of like, well, why didn't you say something? And that's where, again, this issue of self-censorship needs to be addressed. Yeah, I've never experienced anything like this in my long life so far, of people being part of something and then saying, oh no, no, I didn't do that, it's really weird. Um, One thing I wanna, I just clarify with you, is how your activism was taking place. In other words, you you were teaching, you were against yeah. giving the vaccine to children. Um, yeah. How were you doing that? Besides, I'm assuming you, you were on Twitter, but what else were you doing? Were you speaking about it at school, on school premises, no, on school no, no, time? No, no, no. no. No, not at all. So, mm-hmm. so um, uh, the only conversations which happened on the school site were when uh, my chair of governors and uh, certain other members of staff would ask me when I was going to get vaccinated, right? And it was, um, uh, and that was, I would be often asked that question. And, and ironically, it would often happen after uh, they had returned from their second or third bout of um, getting COVID post-vaccination. And, right. it, uh, you know, I would always say, well, you know, you're not really selling it uh, to me currently, but uh, because, you know, clearly it doesn't stop transmission. Of course, they would say, oh, yeah, but, um, you know, uh, it could have been so much worse, could have died, et cetera, et cetera. But the point being, I would always say, look, I, I don't fall into any sort of group where I would be, requ- I, I need, need to have the vaccine. So that would be the only time. I'd never talk about it with the children. I'd never say anything uh, in, in within the school day it was I was um, campaigning in my own time uh, in the evenings and at weekends holidays mm-hmm. it was um, mainly Twitter but also Facebook um, you know obviously mm-hmm. I got permanently banned from Twitter in the end so it was just Facebook sometimes it felt like I was just talking to myself but I just carried on saying what I needed to say and then mm-hmm. I did various podcasts and uh, a few uh, things like GB News as well, they kindly had me on, and uh, people like Majid Nawaz, Tess Lowry, people like that, just trying to get the kind of message out as much as I as I could. Uh, I did one public talk on it to a very, very small number of people, but it wasn't like massive stuff, but the the, the kickback was absolutely enormous, and I think it's because I was the only head teacher to be saying anything about it. So of course I was easy pickings. There wasn't anyone else to to mm. go after. 
Yeah. So I want to just get to how you came to the end. Uh, and I want to do it kind of briefly because I want to get on to your ideas about teaching and the way you ran the school and the idea of resilience, which nobody really talks about with kids anymore. We just cater to mm. them being freaked out and anxiety ridden instead of teaching them how to not be that way. So I think that's a yeah. huge message. But tell me about how, how the end came and and what your life is like now. Like, are are you broke? Are you trying to rebuild some kind of career can you rebuild a career what ha what happened and, and what's it like now for you you know what uh, i'm gonna do i'm gonna go to break let me go to break mike yeah. you formulate your answer okay. while we're on and then uh, mm. while, while we're off and then we'll we'll come back so this is trish wood on, on the edit and i'm here with mike Fairclough, and we're just about to hear from him um how his days at the school where he was headmaster ended because he was bravely speaking out against children taking the vaccine. So we'll be back in a minute. I'm Trish Wood. This is The Edit. With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. Adam Johnson and Matt Petgrave squared off last month in an elite ice hockey league game in England. During the game, Petgrave slashed Johnson under his chin and Johnson quickly bled out. That's not the real story, however, as horrific as it might be. The real story? is how the manslaughter charges against Petgrave, which were handed down this week, are being reported around the world. Man charged in ice hockey death. Man charged in Adam Johnson death. Not murder, death. And not Petgrave, man. Why would the media downplay this event? Oh, did I forget to mention? Yes, Johnson is white, Petgrave is black. And you can be certain that if the roles were reversed, we would have had days of rage, we would have had cities burned down, we would have had marches and protests, we would have had boycotts of the ice hockey team involved. But no, Johnson's white, so bygones. This double standard must end. From MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for TNT Radio. Hi, I'm Smokey Bear, and I made an assistant to help you out, because only you can prevent wildfires. Hey, Assistant Smokey Bear, call me Papa Bear, because I'm grilling up dinner. <laughs> do you get it? Yes, good job. So, what should I do with all these coals? Don't just toss them out. Put them in a metal container, because those embers can start a wildfire. I understand. The stakes are high. Ha, 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 ha. See, Smokey thinks I'm funny. This is The Edit with Trish Wood on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. TNT. Yeah, I'm back with Mike Fairclough. So I guess all those, the media types who were writing absolutely glowing and fawning profiles of you uh, didn't step up to the plate probably when things went south, because that's the way it works these days, isn't mm -hmm. it? But but we, I want to get for you how the end came. And um, and what that meant for your life now, and then maybe we can pivot to some of your really cool views on on education. Um, so, the as I said, the final um, and third um, complaint and investigation came under this sort of terrorism uh, sort of framework, and um, uh, that really just blew my mind because as I said I was really really careful to make sure that all of my messaging was incredibly moderate and aligned with 
you know, reputable and respected people because I was always thinking, you know, I need to communicate with those who will have a, a completely different view to mine. And, you know, I think it's really easy to turn people off uh, from from things if you go too hard with with things. And actually, it's not necessary because, you know, with regards to the vaccines, it's like, you know, we've been told children are at extremely low risk of serious illness. Uh, the, the vaccines pose known risks. There's no long-term safety data, and they don't stop a child from catching spreading COVID. That's all that you need to know. And and as I said, the the, the number of parents, uh, the majority of parents, and it's not just the five to eleven year cohort; it's also the twelve to fifteen cohort. The majority of them elected for their children not to have the vaccines. But you know, there was a th move in in the UK for, um, and this was the Sajid Javid, who became the the next after Matt Hancock, the next. Uh, uh, health minister and he said um if so he said first of all teenagers can have the vaccine in their school setting um and if they want to have the vaccine and their parents don't want them to have them the child will have the final say and again mm -hmm. i was waiting for my head teacher colleagues to kind of step up and go okay right this is on our territory now it's in schools this this goes completely against the grain we cannot have this going on and again there was absolute complete silence so i you know started to again to express my concerns ask you know reasonable questions and challenge uh various uh ministers um and decision makers on on this policy and um again the you know it i was just met with a, like huge amount of um confrontation and attacks and and so what happened was with the final one um uh, it was I, I just thought okay after checking out with my employer that they would not commit to not um continuing to investigate me and of course each investigation had just got worse and more yeah. brutal i thought okay the best thing is to remove myself from that situation but um unfortunately uh i am not able to to uh, you know i've got a so i've got a fantastic legal team this is they're called the free speech union um, yeah. it's headed up by toby young toby um, i know toby yeah yeah, yeah um my barrister is the famous in fact he's the leading civil liberties barrister in the uk is called paul diamond um my wife's actually a, a lawyer as well and she's been incredible throughout the whole of this process and it's okay. you know it's not just impacted me it's impacted our whole family this this the the, yeah. the campaigning and it's, it's been tricky um but you know i've had the wonderful support of all of these amazing amazing people and there's mm -hmm. a court case now in november 2024 where i'm taking my employer to court for um uh for discrimination harassment preventing me from making a protected disclosure which is about me raising the alarm about the vaccines and for constructive uh, dismissal and we're looking at this in the broadest sense of the term as well and looking at the involvement as well of the intelligence agencies so I was on the phone to Paul Diamond this morning and we were talking about making a freedom of information request beyond the counter disinformation unit to MI5, MI6, maybe uh, making an application to uh, Matt Hancock as well because of course this isn't just about me it's like you know 
yes, it's been hard. It's been incredibly hard and difficult and all of that kind of stuff. But this is it's, it's broader than that. It's about freedom of speech in the workplace. It's about the stifling of debate. Uh, it goes beyond COVID because, of course, there are other incredibly worrying things happening within education at the moment as well, like, yeah. um, you know, the, all of this stuff about, you know, children being encouraged to uh, to question, you know, their, their biological um, gender uh, and, and not tell their parents if they've decided that they're a boy today or a girl tomorrow or whatever that's all going on and 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 there's I've got lots of colleagues who who you know who are who are certainly not transphobic and certainly not bigoted but who are saying like I have done you know like this is weird what, what's going on what's you know we need to have a debate about this but again this culture of fear and self-censorship is eclipsing yeah. our what so so I should actually mention Every single person who works within education in the UK has a legal, as well as a moral, but a legal duty to safeguard children against harm. So when you see that there's potential harm that's going to happen to a child, you are legally obliged to do something about it. Now, that's what yeah. I've done with regards to the COVID vaccines, also with school closures and masking. And the, the law states that even if you raise the alarm about something and you it turns out to be a false alarm, you're still protected in law. But of course, all of those sorts of principles and values have been ditched throughout the pandemic. Again, I think because of the mixture of, you know, the Milgram experiment type thing, the, the mass formation psychosis, all of that kind of stuff that I've yeah. been talking about. I, yeah. I will say something to you, Mike. I, I sure. really look quite differently on teachers four years on than I did before COVID. I, teachers and doctors, I thought were heroes. And I've got a whole different view of them now after watching how many of them sat silently and watched this tragedy unfold on people. It's It was really very earth shattering for me. Yeah. And I'm sure it was for you. It must have shaken you to your yeah. boots. Yeah, yeah, well, so, so, so what I've started to do now, so you've asked what I'm doing. So, I, I, you know, no school's gonna touch me because I'm too, like hot property basically to 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 be employed by a school my of my publishers are are not going to look at new work um that i'm doing again because you know i'm sort of like a bit blacklisted so i've started a substack and you can google mike fairclough substack and i'm on there and i'm hoping that this is going to um help with my you know day-to-day -day living um yeah. and anyone who listening who would like to uh be part of that i would be massively grateful because um that's basically all i've got at the moment but what i'm doing is i'm rather than complaining about stuff i'm looking at what can be done about this phenomenon and it links actually to my educational ethos of the past it feels like all of the work that i've done to date almost comes to fruition now so so um i look a lot at the idea of self-censorship and how to empower reluctant um free speech people to be able to actually speak their mind about controversial and politically sensitive topics so we can get into that uh, a little bit okay, more after I, your next yeah question. I, well yeah okay but the first thing i gotta say my producer is just speaking in my ear saying that he thinks you should be named the head of eaton college he likes your your ideas there's so a, much. So, yeah, or, I have or, to say there's or, a great guy called Johnny Noakes at Eton, who's the head of English, who who is awake and uh, really powerful. So just a shout out to to him. He's, he should be the heads of Eton. 
<laughs> but but let me also say this because this thought crossed my mind. There's a lot of billionaire money bubbling around out there right now, on your side of the tracks. And I, you know maybe you should start your own school with your own ethos. And I'm sure there'd be a yeah, lot I'd of love people to. out there I'd who want to fund you. Yeah, yeah, you might have to hook me up with some of those people because I don't know them. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Maybe this will help. But uh, so that yeah. leads me to I, I did not want to end this without talking to you about some of your really great ideas. And they're so needed right now because kids have so much anxiety. I yeah. admit it. I read. Um, Oh, what was it called? Uh, it was the book about how we 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 raised our kids like helicopter parents, which I did, mm. and now they all have anxiety from it, right? And yeah. I was one of those people. Yeah, I yeah. see it. I, my kids have overcome it, thank goodness. But but they need resilience. That's a word you, you that you use, and I yeah. and I think the older I get, especially having lived through COVID and all the other stuff that's happened in the last five years. Um, mm. We all need to be more resilient. So how did you bake that into yeah. not just the, the curriculum of the school, but the whole kind mm. of identity of the school, which is what made you so popular yeah. in yeah. the first place? Yeah. How'd you do it? What'd yeah. you do? So, so a lot of it comes from my background. So, so my paternal grandfather, so my dad's dad, fought in World War One in the Somme. So it's interesting. It's like literally just two generations ago, my uh, grandfather was in, he was in the Cameron Highlanders and he fought in the trenches in a kilt. And in those days, they like when they went over that the top, there'd nice. be a guy at the front of the line with with bagpipes walking into an enemy, enemy fire. So I grew and, and on my mother's side, my grandfather uh, was in World War Two. So I grew up with these stories of of resilience and, you know, fighting for the greater good and all of that kind of stuff. And um, and then within my own life, I've also had a number of close uh, personal bereavements as well. So, for example, my sister and her children were killed when I was 24 in a, in a road accident. Uh, various friends, oh, no. uh, oh, my the, the the my first wife and biological mother of my two old, older boys died very suddenly 12 years ago. So so my kind of benchmark for like hard stuff is um pretty high actually and i think that's partly what's helped me um kind of uh cope with this sort of situation because actually although it's been really difficult it's not yeah. been as bad as somebody uh very close to me dying for example or a child you know and there's people in the world who've so much worse than anything i could ever experience as well so that's always something i bear in mind but, but, but let but me I just sorry, sorry yeah. mike let me just interrupt you and say first of all yeah. it sounds like you're running on cortisol and have been for a long time um but but it also did those things give you the kind of this the wisdom that has brought you into this point now where you're really really um wise and careful about what we need to be doing with children i, I mean i hate to suggest that good things uh, yeah, come from tragedies but did no, it make oh, no, you no they do though yeah but they yeah. do this is the thing so so um i think that so so ultimately um the it, it's all about moving beyond the comfort zone so you know sometimes mm -hmm. we're plunged into that by a bereavement or you know a relationship ending or you know like the situation that i'm in at the moment but but in order to make rapid leaps in your self-development on every single level you need to move beyond the comfort zone and going back mm -hmm. to what you said about how children have been raised in fact like and and uh, you know the the sort of people in their 20s as well um is is to kind of embrace this idea of 
um, sort of celebrating kind of weakness and um, really focusing on things like anxiety. So anxiety is seen as something which you need to somehow do away with, when in actual yeah. fact, I don't think there's anyone alive who doesn't every day at some point feel anxious about something. So demonising anxiety and just focusing on it in the hope that it's going to disappear is a really bad way to, to deal with that phenomenon. The best way to deal with it is to strengthen yourself. And the only way to strengthen yourself is to move out of your comfort zone on regular occasions which is what I then did with the children at my school so in addition to having my kind of um my background with regards to you know the sort of world war one here grandfather hero and, and so on and so forth I grew up in the Chiltern Hills in um in Buckinghamshire in in Great Britain and uh it was in the 70s running around with like knives and guns in the in the countryside and yeah. you know being out with no watches didn't know what the time was you'd look at the sun to work out the time and all that kind of stuff you know I came to my school with all of those sorts of like influences and opposite the school sites um I discovered after a year of being there um there was a, a an area of 120 acres of wild marshland which was previously being leased out to farmers for grazing and the leasing license had expired and they um and it was just up for grabs so i contacted the local authority and said look can i take over that land and i want to start a farm and i want to start like shooting and all of that kind of stuff and they said yes absolutely so we used the uh that landscape as the basis for this philosophy of moving children out of the comfort zone in order to build things like resilience, in order to foster things like risk taking, and also to inspire a kind of awe and wonder of the world. Because of course, outside of the classroom and in nature, you're confronted by absolute beauty and incredible mystery. And it, the, the idea of like, you know, this it's interesting how actually over the um, pandemic, critical thinking was sort of demonised, wasn't it? It's like, oh, don't think about stuff or even with yeah. intuition as well. I remember um, there were uh, listening to uh, Radio 4, BBC Radio 4 saying, you know, whatever you do at this time, don't trust your gut and don't trust your instinct. There's like these awful um, sort of like ideas being perpetuated when actually yeah. when in actual fact, if you're in nature in particular, you use your intuition, you use your gut you sense things you um if you see something that's interesting you're going to kind of want to look at it um children in particular love to go off the beaten track they like to go to uncharted places it's all of the things which um and i write about this a lot in my previous books but also on my Substack. it's all of those things which tyrannies in all their forms absolutely fear so a tyrannical partner or a tyrannical boss or a tyrannical state does not want an imaginative population they don't want a risk-taking population they don't want an inquiring population they don't want a resilient one they want a weak one who then give their power away to you know whoever it is who's trying to um, manipulate them so it's all of those things where it, which actually are naturally occurring within children but which basically get beaten out of them by educational indoctrination and various other influences and i saw that early on and thought okay i want to do something about that and introduced it to my school that that's just uh, you know a wonderful one and, and as you were talking about children in nature 
which we all intuitively know they need and which they get farther and farther apart from now they sit in front of screens yeah. all day right they don't know a yeah, thing yeah. about nature but but really it's it's winnie the pooh isn't it isn't it christopher robin yes in the woods having this huge imaginative wonderful time wandering around the woods i mean kids wouldn't be allowed to if there were woods anymore but kids wouldn't be yeah. allowed to wander around them alone anyway i mean it's really kind of a tragedy and then i read a book i think it's called the last child in the woods you probably know about that or yes on the yes or something yes yes uh, around yeah. this i mean it's real. you're you are just you're you are a gem and if i had kids and you Thank had a you. school that's you know where my kids would be going now if my kids were little i'd be homeschooling that's what i'd be doing <laughs> well that's because interesting because that's yeah, that's what we've done with our younger ones, actually. So my wife and I, yeah. we've got, so there's the, 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 we've got 26 year old called Tally, 19 year old called Iggy, who are men now and they're strong and they do their thing and they're really cool. They're also <laughs> awake, which is really good. And then hey. we have two, two, um, six year old twin daughters called Luna and Star. And, yeah. uh, Sundeep, my wife and I, um, decided to home educate, uh, them to get them out well of the done. system. And it's the only way it's the only way nature yeah. and you know yeah. that's that's the their vibe way. so yeah it is the only way yeah. thank you so much the music tells me i gotta say goodbye we could talk all day okay. and maybe we'll just have you on to talk about teaching you know and not COVID, so fabulous. we can learn more about that too you're a yeah, terrific person you. and thank you so much for doing this i'm really grateful you came and you left you're me very kind. feeling thank uplifted you. so thank you very much yeah Mike. you too bye -bye. thank you very much indeed trish take care bye-bye you too i'm trish wood this is the edit on TNT Radio.